the Links and Locks podcast. Better than most. Better than most. Better than most. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. Four. You got real talent. Don't concentrate on golf. What's up, everybody, and welcome once again to the Links and Locks podcast. I'm Jason Sobel from Golf Bet. He is, of course, Justin Ray from the 21st Group, and we are both very, very tired. We're sleepy. <laughs> we are wiped. We are beat. I can only imagine how the guys who were actually competing in the Ryder Cup feel. I, you know, I was just banging away at a keyboard watching them play golf all week. Uh, you're grinding away at stats, but I mean, those guys were actually competing in this thing they've got to be exhausted so uh we're gonna get into the Ryder cup of course breaking down not only what we saw this past weekend but maybe even a little of what we might see two years from now we'll get right to that in a minute with our five questions and of course we'll get to the sanderson farms championship this week's pga tour event in jackson mississippi we'll make our dfs lineup and i can tell you that jay ray has been breaking down the field ever since the final putt dropped to the Ryder cup just absolutely breaking down the entire field for the Sanderson. What's up, dude? Um, It's all just wall to wall, Mississippi. We're just getting ready for the the fifth major of the year. Now I (laughs) I do need a little bit of time to decompress after such a, you know, unbelievable high pressure fun week. I mean, there's just, there's nothing like it in golf, nothing like it in our sport. And I, I think I can only hand people have been clamoring. We should have this every year. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I think one every two years is the scarcity, I think, helps a little bit, makes it feel a little bit bigger, especially this one being the first in three years. Um, and I think I just, as from a personal standpoint, I'll just take one every two years. Like I just, you know, there's so much stuff and um, it's, it was a blast though, man. I mean, even though, you know, obviously we talk about on here, um, my side works analytically with the European team that m- might go down as the strongest Ryder cup team that's ever played 1981 United States will be, in the conversation as well. But I think we're going to look back on what the United States did, the depth of the team, the wall to wall, just awesome performance. Every player on the team having a point before uh, winning a match, not having a point, winning a match before singles even started. Just amazing. So um, great week of golf, man. Yeah, it really was. I was out there the entire week. Uh, It was fantastic. I thought the Wisconsin fans were awesome. Uh, Can't wait to see what Beth page is going to be like in, uh, in my my native Long Island and in four years, that's going to be very, very ugly, noisy. but we will get to that. <laughs> yes. It will be a little noisy. Um, I, I just, I, you know, guys are gonna be, uh, don't, if you're a player in there, don't uh, an opposing player, don't hit it too close to the rope line because someone might just like take a swing at you. I mean, it's just going to be absolute mayhem, which I am all there for, but yeah, this past week I thought was uh, awesome from every single angle other than, sort of the lack of competitiveness at one point on Sunday, I said, Jay Ray, that it might've been really cool if Europe had been up 11, five going into the singles, the way the American flags were all over the singles matches. And it could have been like this historic day of golf, as it turns out, like in that scenario, the U S team would have come up a little bit short, but that would have been a really fun day. Instead a fun week, but maybe not the most competitive week, but I want to get right into the five questions. Five minutes. Five questions you never asked. I got to be honest with you. I get a little irritated when somebody calls me away from my golf. This is Five Under. Uh, There's so much to talk about. I think we're going to spend some time on each of these reviewing the Ryder Cup. So you brought it up. I'll ask it as the first question. 
is this the greatest Ryder Cup team of all time? And by that, I mean the U.S. side, not the European side. Yeah, we're prisoners of the moment sometimes, uh, but mm. I think that it's, it warrants the conversation just based on what they did top to bottom, the depth of the team. They entered the week with the best average world ranking ever of a team assembled going into one of these team competitions. The official world golf ranking started in 1986, so you've got you know more than 30 years of, of, of history to go there. And then they come in and they absolutely, if not lived up to that, exceeded expectations. I mean, the largest margin of victory in the modern era. Um, I mentioned everybody on this U.S. team winning a match before they even got to singles. There was a point on Sunday where it looked like everyone on the U.S. team might win two matches, which is the most ridiculous. That's like winning the Super Bowl 70 to nothing. Like that doesn't. That doesn't make any sense. And, and that's like like winning the Super Bowl 70 to nothing and scoring twice with like offense, defense, and special teams. Like it's just top to bottom, an unbelievable performance. I know historically the 1981 team has looked back on from the United States has looked back on as one of the best ever. Um, just the depth and the Hall of Famers led by Jack Nicholas um, on that team. But I mean, it, it's going to be in the conversation, man. I think we're going to look back on this years from now and um, this will be a little bit of a, I know we're talking about this U.S. team as, oh, they're poised to just run with this for years and years to come. And maybe that's the case, but I still think this is the size of the victory here was kind of an anomaly. And this was an unbelievable performance. Yeah, I agree with you. I, there's obviously some recency bias at play. We were less than 48 hours uh, from the final putt dropping. And so we're still in this window, still in the bubble of, holy cow, they were so good. And it was the greatest differential ever since uh, in the modern day, since Europe all of Europe became uh, involved in the Ryder Cup. That said, I, I think in other sports, we tend to look back at great teams and break them down from the individuals that were involved. The Chicago Bulls title teams, we say, oh, well, they had Michael Jordan, they had Scottie Pippen, and they had these other guys. And then you look at sort of the 49ers teams from the 80s. Okay, Joe Montana and Roger Craig and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott. I mean, they had all these great, great players. I'm not sure you can necessarily do that in this circumstance, because if you do, I mean, if we're just going to p compare individual achievements of the players on each roster, I, you look back at, well, a few years ago, they had Tiger Woods, who his major championship wins, I believe, surpassed the entire 12-man roster of this year's team. And Phil Mickelson, of course, who was a vice captain on this year's team. I, if you just look back on it, 10, 20, 30 years from now, and you say, well, what was the best team? Breaking it down by individual, it might not have been the best individual team, but the sum of its parts are probably the best we've ever seen. You, uh, you look me, at how I've they came the together as a team. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've got the 1981 roster up. I just want to give folks a little bit of perspective in terms of the depth that sure. team had. Jack Nicholas, age 41, had just come off winning his 17th major championship in 1980. Mm -hmm. Um he was 41 years old. Tom Watson, 32, right in his prime. Ray Floyd, towards the end of his prime, 39. Bruce Litsky, really good player. Never won a major championship, but won a ton on the PGA Tour. One of the best ball strikers of his era. Tom Kite, Hale Irwin, Lee Trevino, Jerry Pate, Ben Crenshaw, Johnny Miller. I mean, there's some history there. That's, that, that's, a, that's an unbelievable assembly of major championship success. And they won 18 and a half to nine and a half that week. I smell a column coming from you somewhere in one of your outlets that you're writing for about comparing the 81 team in this one. Am I wrong? 
you are smelling correctly, probably <laughs> down the road. That seems like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Um, and maybe something I've thought about already. So uh, yeah, no, I it's, just, I, it's, I didn't know that by the way. I just guessed that on there. Yeah. So Colin Morikawa, I think we could look back on, look, the guy has two, two major wins and eight starts and no one's done that in the modern era period. Not even Tiger Woods. Um, does he go on and win? nine major championships probably not but i have no idea we don't know at mm-hmm. that point but maybe we look back and if dustin johnson picks up a few more and you know patrick cantlay and xander shoffley each win multiple majors and colin morcow is a top 10 player to ever live i don't know but we can't we don't know that yet so history is going to tell us but that sort of gets to my point justin is that i think if we break it down player by player and we say well this guy's really good next this guy's really good it it diminishes the team aspect and we can all agree that the reason the u.s team won this past week is first of all and and i want to get into how much the captains meant to this and how much they matter and all this kind of stuff because i think it's a good hot button issue right now but uh steve stricker got these guys to play together as a team i mean what did we talk about for months leading into this how are brooks and bryson going to be in the same team room together how are they going to get along they ended the Ryder cup by hugging while holding the Ryder cup i mean it was it, the fact you know that it helps were... relationships on teams winning whooping whooping ass that helps <laughs> that was not a win that was an ass beating i mean that was an absolute demolition and, and all of it gets to my point which is if we're looking at how great a team is to break it down from the individual aspect is probably doing it a disservice i think we have to look at the overall performance of the players involved as opposed to all right, well, Jack was their best player, our best, you know, most accomplished player. I, Brooks Kepka yeah. and Jack had more majors, so he was better. They get the check mark on their side. It's not really how you do it when you're looking at best teams. Best teams are exactly what it says, the best team top to bottom. I remember reading a book on soccer uh, long ago, and I know, you know, you've studied soccer under the 21st group just a little bit, but it was very interesting in that uh, all the analytics showed that the best teams over the years from uh, from European nations, from Brazil, from other places were instead of, hey, we've got six really, really big time superstars and five other guys that start for us. They're OK. It was we've got 11 very good players and they may not be any of them the biggest superstar in the world, but your team is only as good as sort of the bottom of your lineup. And I think that's true of what this U.S. team was. So maybe. One through five, you look at the 81 team, you look at maybe even some teams that lost that had Tiger and Phil and some other players up near the top. You say, well, those players might have been better overall than one through five on this team, but six through 12, seven through 12, I'm not sure you find a better seven through 12 than this one. Kind of makes me think if you compare, if you look at the New York Yankees in the last 25 years or so, right? Like the best teams they had were like, what, 1998? around that time Mm -hmm. and the back end of that roster like obviously they had Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada Mariano Rivera but the back end of that roster is like Charlie Hayes Scott Brogius Paul O'Neill Bernie Williams isn't a hall of famer these are good players but it's not the level of like let's say I just pulled up the 2005 Yankees that had Randy Johnson and Alex Rodriguez and Gary Sheffield and Jason Giambi and all these names that had better individual careers but obviously the 19, like a team from the, the late nineties, they won the world series. They're looked at historically as one of the all time great teams. The 2005 team got eliminated in the playoffs. So just a, just thought of a random corollary type yeah. example, but I get your point hundred percent. It really, it makes total sense. And sometimes in, especially in a 
quote unquote league when there are only two teams that exist. I mean, we, we can look in baseball and say, okay, well, they are one of 30 teams or however many there were in the yeah. league at that point where, okay, the, the differential between them and number two is this much. Them and number 10 is this much. Them and the last place team is this much. And you have more of a gauge of how good that when there's only two teams involved in your quote unquote league and the differential is more than double from the first to the second. Well, that kind of tells you a lot about that team. And granted, it's a very small sample size, but uh, that's kind of what I look at when I see the team aspect of it. Got it. Absolutely. (laughs) Can't add any more. Question number two. How much do the captains matter at the Ryder Cup? And I asked this question. I'm I'm going to preface this. Hang on, because I know you do a lot of work with the European team, and I know... There's so much that goes into it. I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm asking this question directly because I think there are a lot of people out there on both sides, American fans, European fans, who in the last two days have said, well, yeah, the American team was way better than the European team. And so Steve Stricker basically just had to say, okay, you play with him, you play with him. And they went out there and played and they won. I mean, it's not that hard. The better team won. I My comeback to that is, in seven of the previous nine Ryder Cups, the better team did not win. And so there has to be some sort of intangible aspect to this where the, the more talented side not only doesn't always win, but often loses, more than often loses this competition. And so how much does that captain mean to the team? Well, I think there are a confluence of factors that could be tied in that lead to its team playing maybe to its potential or or potentially over its potential. And I think that the captain plays a role in that, in that sense, right? Getting his guy. I know the the phrase, he got him to buy in, buy in. You heard that over and over again, talking about how Mm -hmm. I think that there's, you can have a perspective of this going into the event. One, the United States is probably getting tired of getting their butts kicked. Two, I think there was more of a, we're invested in this. We want to win. We're tired of, of the narrative being we underachieved. And then three, this was the highest ranked collective group of players that have ever been assembled on, on a team. You put all those things together and you're on home soil. You have all the fans with you. You're able to a middling sense, able to manipulate the course a little bit to benefit you. You know, you look at the setup, like for example, the first hole is the perfect example of that, where they push the tee way up compared to where it was at whistling straights and turned it into, you know, guys trying to drive the green and power obviously benefits the U S side. There are little things the captain can do to help the team can do not just the captain, but the captain, his staff, his whole entire group that's working with him that can add little incremental advantages, right? Think about, I used a baseball analogy earlier, but think about a really good manager. Who's got to like the, a manager for the Tampa Bay Rays. Who's got to play with, they obviously don't have the money to spend on high price talent, right? They mm-hmm. have a lower mm-hmm. payroll, but right. they can develop analytical strategies, try to get them a little bit of a heads up. They can employ more defensive shifts. They can look at, you know, different ways to structure their pitching order and, and use more relievers and see how they can try to squeeze out, you know, that money ball, that, you know, that extra win or two that they might not necessarily get in the end though, the players have to perform. Right. So I think there are incremental advantages you can glean from being a really good manager or a really good captain or a really good head coach. But it, in the end, the players have to play, right? And the American players just were fantastic, and the European players didn't play that well. I mean, 
you know, the American players from scoring wise absolutely dominated the par fives. They want the, the American side won 34 par fives. The Europeans won 14. That's the whole Ryder cup. That's it. That's the whole differential right there is that the United States was 46 under par on par fives. Europe was 22 under par 24 shot difference on those holes. They were key. U.S. blows them out. I mean, it's really that's what it kind of came down to. So, Marco, long-winded answer to your question: Yes, they can have a they can play a role, they can help, but in the end, it's up to the guys in the arena. Marco Simone in two years in Rome is going to be set up for a par sixty-eight with fairways that run out at two thirty, and, and no you've got to hit it. No, no fairways. fairways. Just all okay. Just no yeah. fairways. <laughs> yeah, I, you're out there growing up the grass already. I know what's going on. Um, no, I. So first of all, I, I completely agree with a lot of what you said there. I think Steve Stricker was so important to this team because he set a tone and the tone was, I'm going to treat you like big boys. You guys are professional golfers. You're adults. I love the fact that afterwards they said, you know, in the team room in past years, they're bringing in guest speakers every night to rile them up. They're showing videos. And I, I think a lot of that got these guys almost too stressed out. Like, feeling the pressure too much stricker was sort of like yeah i don't know like look if you finish your practice round and what you normally do is you know ice up your elbow because your elbow's bothering you go ice up your elbow if you'd like to finish up your practice round and have a beer with a couple of guys go have a beer if you'd like to finish up and go take a nap and watch some tv go do it it's like i'm not going to get you out of your routine even scotty scheffler said afterwards he was interviewed by uh, carl paulson on sirius xm and he said you know, it just didn't feel that much like a, that much different than a normal event uh, other than, Hey, we're playing together as a team, but I never really felt that pressure and that stress. And for Stricker to get a a guy who's a a young player, who's never even won on the PGA tour, who's in probably the biggest position of his entire career to feel pretty comfortable in that situation. That's an intangible that you really can't measure. And I don't know that there's a way to say, okay, Steve Stricker was worth this many points. I certainly don't think Steve Stricker was 10 points better than Padraig Harrington. So let's not, you know, let's not sit here and say the U.S. team only won because Steve Stricker was a great captain and Europe lost because Padraig Harrington made a bad pairing somewhere. I mean, this was, it, it was always going to be this based on what they did. But Steve Stricker put his team in the best position to win. I love the fact they went on the scouting mission couple of weeks beforehand you got all the players other than Kepka uh to go there and sort of a little bit of a bonding session a little bit of a scouting mission on the golf course to see what it is and see what it's like and see where their sight lines are and how the putts are rolling things like that I just thought he he pushed all the right buttons and he didn't have to push any of them too hard he didn't have to uh really sort of put his fist down for anything but the team very much took on Steve Stricker's personality and his personality is that of a, a soft-spoken man from Wisconsin who just gets the job done. And, and that's exactly what they did. They just went out there and said, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, Jay Ray, just based on everything I've heard over the years and what I heard this past week, there are other U.S. teams that had way more fun in the team room. There are other U.S. teams that came away from the Ryder Cup going, man, we lost, but what a week. Man, we tore it down this week. We had a blast. It didn't seem like they necessarily had the most fun week, but look, if the whole MO, the thing is go win and then you can have your fun. That's exactly what they accomplished this week. 
Yeah, they did it perfectly. And you did a better job articulating what I said at the beginning of my yeah. point that, you know, generating and fostering an environment, you know, along the way that helps players succeed. That's exactly what Stricker did. And he, you described it perfectly. The, um, making it feel like a regular event. Justin Thomas even said in the press conference when all the dudes were hanging around, Xander's got a cigar, Justin Thomas kind of, yeah, you know, kind of felt more like the President's Cup, you know, and that kind of says it all, just a more yeah, relaxed really. vibe where historically at the President's Cup, that might change now going forward, um, you know, as close as it was at Royal Melbourne, but they rolled in there, they were laid back, they're pretty confident they're going to win, and they went and handled the business. Speaking of which, you know who's not feeling too confident? Trevor Immelman, the international team President's Cup captain. They'll go to Quail Hollow next year on U.S. soil. Uh, you're watching what happened this past week, and you're like, I, and I will say, I, the international team is very much improved. And maybe the U.S. players don't take the President's Cup as seriously as they take the Ryder Cup. But still, you feel like they could show up and play it 90% and still do pretty well in that thing. Okay. Uh, You'll question change number your two three. Once Pereira makes that international team. He's on He's already, on dude. He he He'll is on board. Yeah, he might get on this week. Uh, oh, little little teaser there. Little there tease. We like this week. Uh, question number three: How much does home field advantage matter in the Ryder Cup? I think this time it mattered a good amount, and it wasn't just because of being able to set up the course to their benefit. I think there's a lot of inherent pent up you know, crowd energy that had been missing at sporting events the last couple of years. And this was the biggest, this is a different animal than the major championships, right? In terms of crowd intensity and just the overall vibe of the place. And this felt like a big release for a lot of, a lot of golf fans. And I think that that made it a little bit more of an advantage. And once that momentum and that wheel started going downhill, it was kind of a runaway train and everybody got on board and basically from Saturday afternoon through all day Sunday, it just looked like a giant party. So um, I'm, I'm sure you can attest to that about how, how great the environment was and how much fun everybody was having. So um, it, it seemed like, and I have no idea. All, I, I don't know and, anything about the party, but it seemed like some people were having fun. Uh, yeah, right. Of course. Yes. yes. But I mean, all if you look well. at the, if you look at the outcomes of the last several Ryder cups, I mean, they've pretty much been home blowouts alternating by either side. You know, United States wins by 10 here. Europe won by seven and 18, 16 U S won by six, like Europe won by five. It's a going back, you know, the last four have been alternating pretty significant blowouts where the, you know, one side had it pretty well in hand about halfway through singles play. So um, yeah, I think it's a pretty significant role and I would be interested in, I think you've got to have an independent third party set up a golf course. I don't think you can, I don't think that, you know, being able to structure a golf course, for your team's advantage is healthy for it long-term. I just say that. Yeah. I, I don't mind it the way it is now. It, look, the American team is better than the European team right now. I think they're going to be much better than them two years from now, maybe even by a wider disparity. I like the fact that team Europe can set up the next course in Rome. The only way they can have a chance to win it. If it's set up by a third party and it's neutral, well, I didn't I say start it in 2023. Oh, I just said oh, long oh. term. We need oh, to Oh, I got you. Maybe in 25. Okay. Maybe that's when we, we take a look at it. <laughs> so I have made the, the point. The health of the thing long term, right? It doesn't, you can't, it just doesn't seem like, you know, something that you, you know can, what? It's not such a bad thing if the home team NBA wins finals, every two years. The Warriors can't add a four point shot from 
you know, 40 feet away. Like, it's just, I don't know. I think that for the long-term viability and for it, it just would make more sense, I think, for me from a competition standpoint and a fairness standpoint for there to be a third party that sets up the golf course and is agreed upon. I know there's a captain's agreement going into the Ryder Cup, but just a thought. Fair schmare. Let the home team set it up and let them have a massive advantage and try to go win in front of the home crowd. I mean, there, there's literally no better scenario for the Ryder Cup every two years than U.S. wins in, in America and yeah, screaming fans and they love it. Then they go to Europe two years later and the Europeans win in front of the European fans. They're like, yeah, all right. And we all try to figure out what's wrong with the other team as we're breaking down the next two years. I, it seemed to work out pretty well. Uh, I United will maintain States has not one on foreign soil since 1993. I know Ray Floyd was on that team. Tom Watson was a much better captain that year than he was in 14. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. I, I, I have maintained in the last couple of days that I believe home field advantage in the Ryder cup is bigger than home field advantage in maybe any other sport. I mean, you mentioned the NBA there. We all saw Hoosiers, the, the nets are, 10 feet off the ground. You can't say, well, we're hosting the NBA finals for the first two games. We're going to raise it up to 11 and a half because we got a bunch of big guys who can jump out of the gym and that's going to help our team. Football field's going to be a hundred yards long. You can't say, well, we've got, you know, uh, we've got a bunch of like guys that can run these fly patterns and we've got a big arm quarterback. We're going to make it 120 yards, like a CFL game. And we're just going to throw deep balls to, to these guys and let them run under it. That's not how it works, but in the Ryder Cup, you can set up the golf course. And I think most PGA Tour events, we say, okay, well, to neutralize the advantage of these big hitters, may, you know, it doesn't always happen, but about 300 yards, 315 yards, okay, the fairways start to pinch in a little bit, or there's, there's a well-placed bunker somewhere, a water hazard where it's like, well, you can't really just grip it and rip it to that extent. Whereas at Whistling Straits, what we saw this past week was, at about 310, 315 yards, the fairways got bigger. And they got bigger for a reason. And that reason was to accommodate the U.S. team, which had longer hitters than the European side. So I think it's a massive advantage. I was only half kidding earlier when I said the fairways are going to be 230 yards long and then a dog leg that goes 170 in the other direction with you know two feet of rough on either side of the fairway. But it very well might be exactly that, which... It's kind of what Le Golf National was in Paris a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. You thought I was lying when I said there's going to be no fairways at all? I'm okay with that. I'm just kidding, obviously. But, yeah, no, it's it's a big advantage, and I think that's why I think take a 20,000-foot view, examine it, and, you know, maybe in 2025 we have a uh, independent third party setting up the golf course. I don't know. Just a thought. 2025, we're going to have a bunch of guys who've been sitting in their cars in the parking lot at Beth Page going, yo, I got that for you. I'll set up this thing. We're going to win this thing, right? Carry on. <laughs> no response from Jay Ray. No. All right, question number four. Who are the captains in 2023? Let's spin it forward a little bit. Oh, um, well, I think the consensus is Zach Johnson to the U.S. side. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, after as great as Steve Stricker was, if they decide to do it again, just run it back with Stricker. Um, I don't wasn't think that, they will. Wasn't that his they, Costanza moment? Wasn't that his, all right, everybody, I'm out of here. See ya. And, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Yeah, to blow it, out it the can't. opponent in your home state where you're, you know, you're the, I mean, yeah, I imagine, yeah, Costanza moment where you just walk off, but um I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little chatter about it. I don't think it would happen. 
I think that they've got a pretty good system that they like in terms of secession and Zach Johnson makes the most sense uh, in 2023 um, for the European side. I mean, man, you take a look and is Lee Westwood ready for that yet? I'm not totally sure. I mean, you don't know, you know, where his game will be two years from now. Um, I think Luke Donald is really interesting. Um, he would kind of fit kind of eight. He's the kind of age range of like Trevor Immelman is for the international team. And, mm-hmm. You know, guy has been at the top of the game, but really hasn't found it in a few years. I think Luke Donald would make a lot of sense. And he was an assistant captain as well. Um, and then you're looking at Graham McDowell as potentially one of those guys too. Um, further down the road, probably maybe eight years from now, probably Martin Keimer. Um, and then Paul mm-hmm. Casey, you're looking at that too. So um as far as if I had to bet, I would say Luke Donald, but I could see a number of guys filling that role uh, two years from now. I'm going to go from the European side with a name you didn't mention. And again, he's still, he's had a little bit of a slump over the last year or so, year and a half, but he's still a very good player. Henrik Stenson is a guy that um, huh. he's very good in front of a camera and a microphone. He was a vice captain on this team. I could see him wanting to do it if his playing, uh, playing career isn't going quite as he'd like it. I, I still think he's got some very good golf left in him, but uh, won a major championship in Europe with one of the greatest weekend performances that we've ever seen uh, served as a vice captain this year. I feel like you're probably right. Westwood is probably still sitting here going, Oh, I'm turn 49 soon, but I'm still playing well. So maybe kind of more focused on making it than being a captain uh, you'll throw a Poulter in there at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think that's kind of the group Graham McDowell, I think be a tremendous captain. I just don't know that he's, I feel like he's been an assistant on more teams than he actually played on uh, at this point. Just speaks to how well he's liked probably. Yes. Very well. Like, uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd go Stenson. I could see Luke Donald. Yeah. Uh, Westwood maybe um, Casey probably still has too much good golf left in him to want yeah. to do that yet. Same with Poulter. Same with Sergio. I mean, you've got a lot of candidates. It's, I feel like they've got more candidates for 2025 and beyond than they do for 2023. I agree with you. Um, I think that Stenson's probably a pretty good call for a couple of years from now. I kind of wonder though, if he's got enough good golf left in him the next year and a half, two years, he may still be trying to make that team. Yeah. And who knows they, the team like Podrick Harrington so much that they might lobby for, Patty to go out again and say, look, we didn't play well enough for him. He did a great job. We want another shot at winning one for him. So I I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility either. As for the U S I think you're probably right with Zach Johnson. It seems like those ducks are all in a row, a little bit better than for the European side. That said, um, Phil Mickelson, probably in 25, we've guessed for 15 years that Phil would be the captain at Beth page at some point. Tiger is going to go on their group text that they've got for all these captains and future captains and just type in, I got next. And everyone just gets out of the way and says, okay, Tiger's the one. I will say in the years before Tiger won the masters in 2019, that was what I had heard from circles was that Italy was where Tiger would be the captain. So I think that then his career trajectory changed a little bit when he came back, won the tour championship, won the masters. Like it, the outlook looked a little bit different. I mean, obviously it's very different than it was 12 months ago, even now with, with, uh, after his car accident. So, um, yeah, I had heard that for years that tiger had circled 2022 and now I guess 2023, um, for, for Italy, but, um, yeah, interesting, interesting moving forward. I think that 
um, the glut of guys you have in the future for Team Europe kind of speaks to that big era of success they had, right? Where, you know, you, you have all these successful performances and notable, you know, Poulter and Garcia and Westwood and Donald had a sneaky great Ryder Cup career. And, you know, it, it sets up for a long line of, of potential candidates for, for them for years to come. Um, yeah. And by the way, for those people listening, don't discredit how much Tiger Woods influenced the, some of the decisions on this year's Ryder Cup. Uh, I think Tiger had a, a major voice. And for all I know, I, I would not be surprised if Tiger continues enjoying being sort of uh, the voice behind the curtain without having to stand in front of a camera and a microphone all the time and being the face of the team. And so I, it wouldn't shock me if Tiger's like, yeah, I'm going to be part of the team for the next two decades. I'm going to show up. I'm going to get these guys' faces. I'm going to, you know, tell them what I think, and I'm going to give lots of advice to the captain, and I'm not going to have to do any media obligations. <laughs> it sounds perfect for him. Pretty good lineup so, there. Pretty good yeah. Pretty good set of responsibilities. I like yeah, that. exactly. Uh, all right, question number five. Uh, again, looking forward, how many players from the U.S. team – this past week will be on the 2023 team. How many players from the European side will be on the 2023 team? Well, it's easy now in the immediate aftermath of the <laughs> biggest blowout in the modern era to go 12 for 12, baby. They're all coming Bring back. Them all back. <laughs> As we know, that's not the case. Um, I'll just go back and let's take a look at a couple of the interesting facts from recent U.S. teams. And I had forgotten about this, let alone, you know, your average fan. In 2014, the highest ranked American player. Can you, do you remember who it was? 2014 highest ranked American player on the team. Phil Mickelson. Jim Furyk. 44 wow. year old Jim Furyk was the best ranked American that Tom Watson had going to Paris. Bubba Watson was second. Ricky Fowler was fourth. And he was My the goodness. only guy in the top 10 on the American side under the age of 35. I mean, so that was kind of like an aging, changing of the guard there too, where maybe we, oh, we, hindsight's always 2020 in this event, which should have seen coming. 2016, couple of the names on that team, that blowout team that won. Ryan Moore obviously was the last pick, had mm-hmm. a hot, hot run at the end of that season, nearly won the FedEx Cup, and then got on the team. JB Holmes, Jimmy Walker. Like, I'm just bringing these things up to tell you turnaround is fast, man. Like, this stuff flips on a dime. Like, a year ago, Jordan Spieth wouldn't have been on this team. Now, after the last 12 months, you can't see him not being on this team for the next 10 years, obviously. Like, you just, yeah. oh, it always just kind of seamlessly fits into that every two-year narrative when you think back on it. Um, I will say, though, that I mean, there's some generational-type talents on the U.S. team. Um, I would imagine that Dustin Johnson is still playing well enough at 39 to be on. Morikawa was definitely not going anywhere. Um Brooks Kepka's health, I don't know. Like, does he does he stay at the top of the sport? Mm-hmm. He's obviously talented enough to do it. I wouldn't be surprised if he went out, won a couple more major championships between now and then, as good as he is in there. I'll say I'll say seven Americans. Wow. Is that high or low? That feels low to me. And I, I know, I get but it. I'm you're trying right. to give I, you some perspective. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely like you right. I mean, English I, Burger, Scheffler, Finau, I could see all of them not making it. I mean, as I think, good as they I, I can also Fien- see all those guys winning a major. I mean, you know? Finau and so Scheffler, I just think are, are only getting better over the next two years. I, I don't yeah, know. That's- yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be negative about that. Right. I'm just saying right. in general, there's always turnover there. And on the European side. Here, let me, I'll, let me do America before you get okay. to Europe. Yeah, you I want to, I want to counter that 
I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I understand life comes at you fast and this stuff's going to change a whole lot. Like you don't get, you don't get Ryder cup points for next time because you want a certain amount of points in this one. Um, so it, it doesn't work that way. And if anything, what we've figured out over the last few years is uh, it doesn't really matter if you're a rookie. Rookies still know how to play golf. And so in some respects, having more rookies on the team, especially when you've lost previously, might be a beneficial thing for the side going forward. So I, I still look at it and I say, okay, Harris English, I could see him not being back. And Berger's sort of played the best golf of his life and still just barely got on the team. Scheffler's getting better. Scheffler's going to be a top 10 player in the world. Tony Finau is going to win a major championship. So you look at those guys, I, I could see English and Berger being replaced by a Sam Burns and a Will Zalatoris, and I'm not sure I could see a whole lot else. Brooks is an interesting possibility as far as, you know, his health and that kind of stuff. But it, if Brooks is close and doesn't qualify for the team, don't you see a captain saying, we need Brooks on this team. We got to put him on. Although, of course, a few years ago, we would have said the exact same thing about Patrick Reed and look how that all turned out. So. All right. The last, time, the last time the Ryder Cup was held in the United States, Victor Hovland was a freshman at Oklahoma State. <laughs> and he's the second highest ranked player in the world on the European team behind John Rahm. I'm just saying this stuff turns over quick, faster than you think. We're in the projection and prognostication business, though. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to project and prognosticate, and it, it, it feels That's a little I. chalky moving forward. I know. All you're, right. Uh, uh, you're probably much closer than I am on this. On the European side, I mean, look, obviously this is kind of a sea change. It's a generational switch. You could feel it all week. Um, you know, as far as the veterans go, that was probably Ian Poulter's last Ryder Cup as a player. Almost undoubtedly it was Lee Westwood's last one. It's probably Paul Casey's last one. He'll be 46 the next Ryder Cup. I could see, I could definitely see Sergio is going to be 43, but I could see him still being on the team. Beyond that, you probably say, all right, Rory, Rom, Hovland are who you'd say are locks, but I could see maybe only four guys coming back, you know, and maybe it's a couple more. Maybe you get Tommy Fleetwood, Tyrrell Hatton. Um, you can see Tyrrell Hatton winning. He hasn't played well in major championships yet in his career, but he has the talent to do it. Um, but I think that there's going to be, a big sea change. I think there's as good a chance that Alex Fitzpatrick, Matt's brother is on this team. The next time they play is there is Matt. So um, I think that's definitely a possibility. So yeah, the, the European side obviously is going to have a lot more turnover. If I was to set an over under, I'd put it at probably five and a half, maybe four and a half. Um, yeah. It's, it's tough because you, you Rom. Yes. Uh, times a million Rory. Yes. Hovland strong yes and then yep. after that yep. eh. yeah i i tend to agree agree with you i think shane lowry probably gets back there sergio boy even if Sergio's just upright and breathing yeah it's really hard to leave him off a team the winningest player in Ryder cup history it's really hard to like well he's playing pretty well and i've got three captain's picks or whatever it might be for the next captain I, it's I'll hard take to this say. plucky Frenchman instead. Yes. Nah, yes. we're probably uh, going to take Sergio. <laughs> yeah. This guy from Portugal has been really making a name for himself. Uh, the other problem I see with this is that I, I don't, and I say this based on research and based on everything I know, I don't see the same, same breadth of up-and-comers as I see for the U.S. side. Um, you know, I mentioned Will Zalatoris and Sam Burns, who's top 30 in the world already. I, 
Okay, there's a Sam Horsfield here and a Rasmus Hoygaard there and a Victor Perez. And I mean, none of those guys really, really excite me. You mentioned Alex Fitzpatrick, who um, I believe is still an amateur, isn't he? Fourth rank amateur in the world, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, yes, he's going to be a good player, but I, I just don't see sort of those up-and-coming superstars. Yeah, Richard Bland's like 60 already. I mean, I, I just don't know where the guys are coming to push these guys out. And I think there are a lot of question marks. I mean, Tyrrell Hatton's been very good for quite a few years now. He has not been great over the past year. Tommy Fleetwood, we all assumed, would be knocking on the door for a major championship for a few years until he finally busted the door down. Tommy Fleetwood has been a fairly ordinary professional golfer for the last 12 to 18 he months. Was, he feels like he was more impacted by most than the COVID. I, COVID. I've been saying that. I, I completely agree with that. But still, I mean, at this point, that free pass has kind of slipped away. And, you know, you've got to kind of look at him for what he is. Matt yeah. Fitzpatrick, he looks so overmatched this past weekend. Uh, he just, he's, he's a good player. He's a good player when course conditions are really, really tough and the winning score is closer to par. But when, you're going up against American side that throws birdies and bunches. I, I just don't know if he's got the firepower to put in there. So again, I, I, I agree with you that there could be a lot of turnover. I just don't know where those replacements are coming from, where they're getting those reinforcements. Can I give everyone a fun anecdote? I was digging through here, trying to I was pulled up the world ranking filter to only Europe was scanning through. It was like, Oh, Antoine Rosner. Okay. Seamus power, maybe down the road, you get down and you're like, Rory Sabatini. I totally forgot that he was part of the European contingent. He could play in the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup against the United States. Kenny? I don't know. I don't don't know. I think he can. I just found it funny to see that name amidst that that list. Uh, Two Hoygaards, by the way, Nikolai, um, as well as Rasmus, have both won on the European Tour. So that could be your your next generation Molinari brothers, maybe, for the European side. Would the analytics say to pair them together? I, I, I can't disclose that. I actually like the whole, you know, like, what is it? One of those like uh, pee in the fountain and switch personality movies where uh, they can name Raspis and then Raspis plays the foursomes. They bring in Nikolai for four balls when Raspis isn't playing as well. The fountain, you know, one of those movies where like they they pee in the fountain, they switch personalities and they become the other person. Where have you Our been? Producers tell us stats. to bring it home. I think we should. I don't know where. Oh my going. god! Pee in the fountain. Yes. People feel feel free. Or to hit by lightning or whatever it is. You yeah. You like you pee in the fountain. The lightning comes down. All of a sudden, you're like you're talking to the guy. Like man, I wish I had you know your life where you know you got a nine to five job and a great family at home. And then the other guy says, man, I wish I had your life where you know you can't do whatever you want. You're single and you can go out and do stuff and boom like you know all of a sudden loud thunder crack and lightning and all of a sudden it's like i'm you and i'm you oh my goodness here's an hour and 45 minutes on what it's like to be the other guy i think it's time to make a DraftKings lineup all right let's get to the sanderson farms (laughs) sam burns is your favorite this week (laughs) excellent at 14 to 1 uh, as we're speaking here early tuesday afternoon i believe it's still early tuesday afternoon my my days and times are a little foggy right now. Corey Connors. circle, man. Time's slim. I tell you, Will Zalatoris, Sergio Garcia, who I, I again, you and I are are wiped after this past week. I, I don't know how Sergio is going to pick up a club as the defending champion, but I do credit him for 
uh, at least showing up, if indeed he does show up. Uh, Charlie Hoffman, Cameron Tringali, Cameron Davis, Keen Bradley, Seamus Power, Kevin Streelman, Siwoo Kim, Mito Pereira, Harold Varner. Those are all the guys uh, shorter than 40 to 1. All right, uh, Jay Ray, one stat that means something at CC of Jackson this week. Yeah, so the since 2014, since they've been at Country Club of Jackson, the average strokes gained putting rank of winners at this golf tournament, 6.6. That is extremely low compared to the PGA Tour average of 14.0. On the flip side, ball striking numbers not as strong for winners at this tournament as they are typically from a PGA Tour average. Tells me... Not that difficult of a ball striking golf course. It gets a little bit neutralized and becomes a little bit of a putting contest. And that's how you get my man, Sweet Pete Malnati, as a winner a few years ago, breaking through on the PGA Tour. A guy who's the quintessential awesome putter, but typically overmatched with some ball striking statistics and is able to scratch it out basically with grit, keeping his tour card. So um, this is kind of the embodiment of that. I know Sergio being the defending champion doesn't necessarily fit that mold, but performance off the tee is a little bit more significant than normal approach play, not as significant. So look for guys. You can find some value of guys who are really good drivers and good putters, and maybe not necessarily the best with their iron play. Any tournament that had Ryan armor, who's one of the shortest, most accurate players on the PGA tour and Cameron champ, who's uh, perhaps the longest hitter on the PGA tour as back-to-back champions. I'm like, I, I, okay. I, We'll make some picks, but I mean, like, let's not, don't lean on us for like, you know, hey, there's one specific type of player that can win at this golf. No, but I do think you can find some value. I think this is a week where you can go yes. deep on the board and find some value. And maybe if you have a DraftKings team, it's top heavy with a couple of those favorites. And then you're able to round out the back end with some guys who've had good course history here, but might not necessarily be guys you go to every week. Okay. Well, enough of the hypothetical DraftKings lineups. Let's get to a real one. Are you going with a, Guy that's going to make us top heavy or a guy that's going to give us value. Want to be a DFS millionaire? You're just one lineup away. We're going to go nose to nose with him. And you're going to play better than you ever dreamed of. Because God damn it, that's what I demand of you. So let's get drafting. I'm going to go with value off the, off the top. I'm going to let you maybe spend a little bit of money. My first pick is going to be Davis Riley. This is a golf Ooh. course, as I said disproportionately favored putting and performance off the tee iron play not as significant davis riley one of two players to finish in the top 30 on the corn ferry tour last season in both total driving and putts per gir really young really talented player 6400 he's going to be my first pick i haven't mentioned this guy in any other um platforms that i i've worked on so far in the last couple of days but if you're going with a mississippi guy isn't davis riley a mississippi guy I know he's a Bama guy. Played I believe Bama. he's from Mississippi. Could I could be, be wrong. Mississippi. I'm going to go we're all, Mississippi. We're all down guy. in the Delta. Yeah. We're all down okay. in the it's, it's all It's college close. football I, season. We're all family this time of year. I'll, I'll take a Mississippi guy too. Uh, let's just go with some, some home staters. Uh, Chad Ramey, who was solid on the Corn Ferry Tour. 7000 He's actually not as cheap as I would have thought this week, but uh, – Let's go with a couple of Mississippi guys, and then we can spend some money up near the top. Okay. You're wow. looking at me that, like you've never heard totally of Chad Ramey. Guard. That caught me <laughs> totally off guard. I did not see Chad Ramey coming because I was going back deeper into the well with my next pick. I'll save that one. Uh, I'll go with Carlos Ortiz. Two top five finishes and three career starts at this event. Has the mm. second best scoring average since 2014 uh, at Country Couple of Jackson. If anybody, only two players have a better score to par here. 
the last four years. Carlos Ortiz, 8,600. A little pricey for my liking, but it kind of speaks to the strength of the field and uh, not necessarily Carlos's ability. I thought that was a pretty good bargain for Ortiz at 8,600. Pretty good. Bar- All right. Yeah. Well, you know, two top fives and three starts. I'm not yeah, opposed yeah. to it. So let's put him on the team. All right. I will go with, uh, you don't usually say a guy straight off the corn ferry is one of your steadiest guys who uh, is comfortable and, and playing well. But Mito Pereira with top Your six boy. finishes in four of his last six starts. Look, I ain't jumping off now, so uh, I'll let you know when I do, but it ain't going to be this week. He's 9,900. He is, what, one, two, three, four, five. He is the sixth priciest player on DraftKings this week, and you could almost say that he deserves to be a little higher. He's like really it. good. I like it. I, hey, look, I keep bringing him up kiddingly here and there because of your affinity for, for Mito and his awesome name. This guy can play, man. He can straight up play. He's been really consistent the last six months or so. I like that pick. All right, I'm going to go back down to the value route here for our fifth player. I mentioned that you can kind of offset some of the ball striking statistics this week by being an elite putter. Denny McCarthy has done exactly that in this mm. golf tournament mm. over the years. He has the best cumulative score to par at this event over the last four years at 37 under. Three top 20s in a row at this event. I'm going to have a ticket on him to have a top 20 this week. I'm also going to put him on the DraftKings team. Only $6,600, one of the best putters on tour the last several years. Prepared to go with Zalatoris, but if you're going to tell me that putting is more important this week than ball striking, Zalatoris is a better ball striker, but Sam Burns, they like to call him Bermuda Burns, and they're back on Bermuda this week, and the guy seems to put well when he gets on these surfaces, so Sam Burns at the top. If you're going to give me that money to spend, I'll spend it, 11000 Ship it. I like it. Ship it. There you go. Burns, McCarthy, Ortiz, Pereira, Ramey, Riley. Only three of our six guys <laughs> have pictures on DraftKings. <laughs> Those flags worked this past week. We can have flags up there, and uh, right. it can work again. All right. Good luck to everybody out there with your Sanderson Farms championship bets, your DFS lineups. Remember, the Links and Locks podcast is available every single week, everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, download, rate us, please. For Justin Ray, the 21st group, I'm Jason Sobel. Good luck. Here's hoping you hit the green.